the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. Uh, We are in the middle of a series which is... um, Part of a question we asked a few weeks back, and um, it began with the question of, well, first of all, who am I and why am I here? But uh, does God have goals for us? Does God have goals for mankind? And um, and the sub-question under that was, actually three questions, um, what is initial salvation for? What are we saved for? Do we ever ask that? Um, and the next question is, what are we saved to? And lastly, the initial salvation question, the third of, of the series, is what are we saved from? And the church really doesn't uh, unfortunately, delve into that. Um, we've really um, oversimplified something that's very deep and profound. Um, we have, in essence, taken a Hebrew uh, journey of relationship reestablishment. Why do I say that? Well, um, man's relationship with God that we see in uh, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 was lost by the third chapter of the book called the Holy Bible. By the third chapter, everything has blown up. And man lost his relationship with his father creator. And ever since then... Um, the spiritual rebellion has penetrated the material world, spiritual rebellion, because the rebellion didn't begin with mankind. It began with fallen angels in what's called the second heavens. And you can read about it in Isaiah uh, chapter 14 and then Isaiah uh, chapter 28. And I encourage you to, to go uh, to those um, books and spend some time with them because you, you begin to uh, understand the nature of the rebellion, um, what it looks like, what it sounds like. And um, let's go to Isaiah Isaiah 14 here just real quick. And uh, beginning at at verse uh, 12, all the way down to verse 17. And I'll just read it here real quick from the... uh, New King James, it says, um, Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Um, How you are cut down to the ground. You who weakened the nations. Cut down to the ground is talking about the earth. And the nations are living on the earth. So Lucifer fell from heaven. That's what verse 12 says in um, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 12 of of Isaiah 14, how you have fallen from heaven. So 
The rebellion didn't begin on earth. It began up in heaven. And it's a spiritual problem. And when we ask the question, um, does God have a problem on his hands? The answer is, yeah, he does. But it's not doesn't have anything to do with transportation. doesn't have anything to do with moving from one place to another. Um, something invaded us. The rebellion, it's spiritual in nature, begun by a fallen angel who took about one-third of the angels with him, uh, brought it down here. So looking at verse 13 of Isaiah 14, uh, For you have said in your heart, referring to Lucifer now, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Well, there you go. That's a problem. Here's an angel referring to something called his throne. Question for you. Look in your scripture. Do you ever see any reference in either testament, anywhere, where it refers to angels having thrones or possessing thrones? What do you do from a throne? Well, you rule, you reign, you have dominion. God didn't set up thrones for angels, yet this angel thinks he has a throne. Um, So these are called the five I wills. I will ascend into heaven. This is all in verse 13 of um, Isaiah chapter 14. This is verse 13. The five I wills. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That's a problem, big problem. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. Uh, Verse 14 has another I will, two I wills actually. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will be like the Most High. Notice it didn't say I will be in union with the Most High. I will be connected to the Most High. I will have a relationship with the Most High. He says, no, no, no. I just want to be like God, but I don't want to be um, connected to him or subservient to him. And then in verse 15, it says, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol. Sheol is uh, the pit. Um, And it says in the next line, To the lowest depths of the pit. Now take a look at verse 16 and 17. Those who will see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the one who made the earth tremble? Some verses say the man. Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world a wilderness? And destroyed its cities? Who did not open the house of the prisoners? Um, And I misspoke earlier. I said um, the other half of this uh, description of the uh, rebellion, I said it was Isaiah 28. It's not. It's Ezekiel 28. So the first homework for you is to go ahead and read Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 17, and then part two is read Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel 28, not Isaiah 28, Uh, beginning at 14. Check this out. Again, what what are we pointing out? We're pointing out that the rebellion against God is a spiritual problem. It's spiritual in nature. It started in the spirit realm, and it came down to the material creation and ruined everything because mankind basically decided to join it. Uh, Verse 14, referring again to Satan here, "You you were the anointed cherub who covers. Um, There are two golden angels um, that cover with their wings um, the Ark of the Covenant. And it's, it's explained that the, when the presence of God showed up during the travels from, uh, from Canaan to Egypt, and this is after they had built the uh, Tabernacle of Moses with all its furnishings, and this was the sixth and seventh furnishing. Um, the sixth was the Ark of the Covenant, and the seventh was the mercy seat. And so this is a description of the prior position of Satan who was that close, proximately. He was that, uh, that near to God. 
Let me go back to verse 14 again. You were the anointed cherub who covers. He was with his wings covering the ark through which in the mercy seat, as the mercy seat sat on top of the ark, God's presence would come down uh, amongst the camp of the Hebrews as they were journeying from Egypt to Canaan. I established you, next line in verse 14, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the days you were created until iniquity was found in you. It's interesting, I'm just looking at this uh, verse 15 in the New King James. It says, you were perfect, and the were is italicized. In other words, it's pointing out that at one point, you were very different before you rebelled against God. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Verse 16, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub. Wow. There it is. He was cast out of the mountain of God. And you see in Isaiah 14, uh, back in verse 12, we just read that earlier, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nation. So you can see this was in a rebellion that began in the spiritual realm and came down because Satan was thrown out of being close to God from his former position as a covering cherub. So it says, the last part of verse 16, And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Verse 17, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. It's interesting that it's used the word ground. Ground is a term that's used in the material earthly creation. I laid you before kings that they may gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries, in verse 18, by the multitude of your iniquities. By the iniquity of your trading, therefore I brought you, no, I'm sorry, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you, all who knew You among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror, H-O-R-R-O-R, and shall be no more forever. Okay, so the nature of the rebellion against God is spiritual, and it came down to earth, and we can see that clearly uh, in both Isaiah uh, 14, chapter 12, and Ezekiel 28. So, we have said in past shows when we ask the question, uh, what are the goals that God has for mankind? What we have already covered is uh, a couple of different things. First of all, that we are to be transformed into the image of God. Adam and Eve used to have that in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 before their fall. And they were made in God's likeness. That's also mentioned in the early chapters of Genesis 1 and 2. So They had God's likeness, and they were made in his image. And we talked about that. I'm just going to refer you back to uh, www.simpletruthministries.net and go to the media page, and we have all of the earlier uh, broadcasts, the radio shows, the podcasts, um, where we talk about this. Uh, We did say also one of God's goals for mankind is to have union uh, between God's children with the Son and with the Father. And we refer to John 14, 21 and 23, where it says, out of the New King James, He who has my commandments 
This is Christ um, praying at the Last Supper with his apostles the night before he passed away, before he was crucified. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. And we talked about this whole indwelling of God, not just being with mankind, but being rather way more deep, way more profound concept, way more um, amazing reality of being in mankind and mankind in the Godhead that we see in John chapter 17. And we talked a lot um, about one of the God's goals, several goals, but one of them is to uh, be reconciled. Um, The Father wants to be reconciled back with his children. And we see in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, especially chapter uh, 2, 15 and 2, 18, Ephesians 2, 18, um, it's by the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, through the Son, uh, mankind, as God's children, are to come back to the Father. So it's through the Spirit, I'm sorry, by the Spirit, and through the Son, we come back to the Father. That's Ephesians chapter 2. But in 2 Corinthians uh, 5, uh, 15 through 20, we covered um, those five verses and the challenge was, how many times do you see the word reconciled, either as a verb or a noun or a gerund, um, in those verses? Count how many times it describes, in essence, the reason or the purpose that the Father sent the Son to earth. It was a reconciliation of separated children back to their divine Father. That's why Jesus came. So again, what are we answering the question? What are God's goals for mankind? One of the goals is to be reconciled back to us. We talked about also in earlier shows, um, one of the goals is to enter God's rest. Um, As pointed out in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. Again, I'm not going to go into that. Uh, we talked about it in earlier shows. Also, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, where God's talking about looking for a house in which he will find his rest. And we concluded in that, those earlier broadcasts that we are God's house. If you look at Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, it, those verses answer the question, which is, where is the house you will build for me? That's how uh, Isaiah chapter 66 starts out. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. But where is the house that you will build for me and where is the place of my rest? And then he answers his own question. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Obviously, he's not talking about a house as we picture a house normally built of uh, construction materials, of brick and mortar and wood, etc. It's talking about he wants to indwell, okay, us. First uh, Corinthians six nineteen, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? There it is again. The Holy Spirit dwells within us, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And then we talked about another goal out of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 16. It talks about having the mind of Christ. And we discuss what that looks like and what, what's that experience like. And again, we don't have time to go all over all of these goals. Um, they're all in previous shows. I encourage you to go back and look at them. But I want to go back to when we were talking about having the mind of Christ from last week's show. I want to build upon that. Uh, what, we, what we concluded that 
as you look at how Jesus progressed with his um, journey on his ministry, he was pretty much focused singularly, I would say exclusively, on what was the heart desire of his father. We don't talk about that very much. We focus on establishing a relationship with Jesus, and if we are Pentecostals, we, we uh, are excited about getting, uh, receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which has multi-dimensions to it. But we don't talk about the fact that the questions that's being asked in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is ask, actually saying, here's all these qualities of God, just amazing. God is incredible. Who could know him? Who can instruct this, this ineffable God, this unknowable God? And then at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he might instruct him? And the uh, Jewish Bible says, Who can know the mind of Adonai that he might instruct him? Referring to the Father. But we have, that's a present tense verb, the mind of Christ. So if you've been initially saved, if you've been born again, um, this is something that we already you already possess. And so I'm going to encourage people to imagine yourself actually operating with something that Paul the Apostle says we have if you are initially saved and you're born again. Have you ever tried to picture or imagine you having a kind of a brain transplant where you have the mind of Christ and thinking, what, what would he think about this? What would he do about this? What would he say about this? And we went over a, a whole bunch of verses that pretty much pointed out, and I'm going to go over those uh, at the end of the break, that the mind of Christ, when Jesus was here, and it continues probably as well, but when he was back here on earth, he was always focused on the question of what does the Father want here? What is the Father's heart desire? What is his will? Um, there was one verse we talked about in John 4.34 where um, Jesus is explaining to his disciples and the woman at the, at the well, he's saying, hey, my very food is to do the will of my Father. I mean, you can't live without food. And, and that's, what, that's the intensity of what Jesus is trying to explain, that he's here to do pretty much one thing. In John 14.10, um, let's take a look at that real quick. He talks about, um, again, where is he focused? And this is out of the New King James. Jesus is, again, this is contextually the night before he dies. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else, believe me for the sake sake of the works themselves. Okay? Now, in John 14.10, it says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Here it is. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Do we live like this? What would happen if we um, basically applied, and if we already have the mind of Christ, it's just a matter of activating it, turning on the O-N button, the on button and really start to operate how Jesus operated when he was here on earth. Aren't we supposed to replicate him? Aren't we supposed to imitate what Jesus did? Aren't we supposed to reproduce and replay everything that Jesus did? Wasn't he our example? Wasn't he our model? Aren't we supposed to emulate and copy what he did? Well, folks, we're being stretched. God's up in the bar. He says, I don't want you knowing about me. I want you to know me. Know in the relational context. Know me relationally. That's, that's going to require some real stretching and real radical change of how we operate. It's called repentance. 
You guys ready for this? Put on your seatbelts. See you after the break. God bless. Did you know that the Simple Truth Moment Show features a website where you can access previous podcasts of the Simple Truth Moment Show? Also, previous radio shows, sermons, lectures, sponsored events, books, and publications, along with the blogs by the author and broadcaster, Reverend Earl Clampett of the Simple Truth Moment Show. Just type in www.simpletruthministries.net and click onto the media page and the book publications page. You will learn so much more on how the kingdom of God ways are impacting our current Gentile church culture to rediscover our Hebrew covenant roots and God's blueprint plan. To bring together both Jew and Gentile into one new humanity in Messiah Jesus and Father God. It will be a life-changing journey you will not soon forget. So type in www.simpletruthministries.net. It's not .org. It's not .com. Remember, .net. God bless. Welcome back, saints. We are talking about the goals of God for mankind, and one of which is to have the mind of Christ that we see in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 16. And we're, we're asking the question, what does that experience look like? What does it sound like? How does it appear? Um, and when we... We say, all right, if we have the mind of Christ already, in other words, it's present tense, but we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 16. Um, and we're starting to see a pattern when you study the four Gospels. Jesus is focused virtually all the time, I would say close to 100% on, t- on what the Father is doing through him what the Father desires to accomplish through him in everything he says, Jesus, in everything he does, Jesus. And I want to give you some more examples here. Check out, um, let's go to John 5, verse 19 to 20, and then we'll jump down to um, verse 30. But check these out, um, out of the New King James again. Um, 519, then Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son, capital S, can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, talking about the father, the son also does in like manner. So where's the mind of Christ How is that operating in that verse? You can see the focus of Jesus. He is focused, even though he's down in a material creation, he is operating from a celestial or heavenly uh, standpoint. When When we preach, I'm sorry, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, aren't we saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven that as it is in heaven that's what that's what Jesus is doing when he says comments like John 5:19 I'll read it again most assuredly I say to you the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do so it means he's looking because if he weren't looking he wouldn't be able to see what the father is doing and then that's a semicolon for whatever he does referring to the father comma, the Son also does in like manner. Check out verse 20, John 5, John chapter 5. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Let's stay in the same chapter. Uh, Verse 30. John chapter 5, verse 30. I of myself, this is Jesus, red letter, Bible, New King James. 
I of myself do nothing. Can we say that? Do we operate as that, as, as saved Christians, as born-again Christians, as, as Pentecostals, if you've had, received the uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit? Can we say this? I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous. But notice what he said, as I hear, Jesus is listening. He's plugged in. It's almost like having an extension cord. And, you know, if, if the extension cord isn't plugged in, there's no life going through. There's no electricity coming through that cord. There's no power coming through that cord. So you've got to stay plugged in relationally, not just to Jesus, but to the Father. And we're just copying what Jesus did repeatedly over and over and over. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because, here we go, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. You see the focus here? It's so important because doing the Father's will is life. And you may say, well, how is that? Where is that? Well, we're going to explain that there's a few verses in John that are kind of surprising to folks. And if we look at John 14, the whole chapter, John 15, the entire chapter, John 16, the entire chapter, and John 17, the entire chapter, those four chapters talk about um, union with God. And the explanation is Jesus is in union with the Father, and the Father is in union with the Son. And those statements are reflective of God's goal of union with mankind. He, he wants not just to come alongside of us. He wants to indwell us. Go back and look at Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. And this has been going on all through Scripture. And Jesus says in John fourteen six, for example, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if, if you might be wondering why this obsession on the Father, if you know the Father, you have something that's called, you ready for this? John seventeen three, And this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Do we know God? And do we know him not just about him, but you hang out with him, you talk with him, you spend time with him. That, on our part, as you do with any relationship, if, you, if somebody came up to you and said, how well do you know this person? And you say, I know him very well. Well, the assumption on somebody who's hearing that is is probably thinking, well, they spend a lot of time together. They hang out. They talk. They exchange ideas. They exchange communications, deep communications, if you know somebody well. It may be, uh, you know, a husband-wife. It may be, um, you know, somebody who's courting somebody and say, you know, I, I'm expressing emotions and how I feel about you. And I want to show... John chapter 12 here, to kind of make this point about eternal life. On John chapter 12, verse 49, um, Jesus says, again, Red Letter Bible, this is out of the New King James, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command. What I should say and what I should speak. Wow. Do we operate like that? Jesus only taught us one prayer. If you're a Catholic, it was called the Our Father. If you're a Protestant, it's called the Lord's Prayer. It's all focused on the Father. All of it. And so here we are where 
Jesus is explaining how it works relationally between himself and his Father, which is actually our Father, (laughs) mutual Father that we have. And look at John 12, 50, the next verse down. Now, he just said, I don't speak on my authority, and the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Holy moly, what are we talking about? That is micro. That means everything. And I know, this is John twelve fifty that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Now, that's kind of a shocker when people say, wait a minute, you're saying the Father's command is everlasting life? Well, okay, so let's go back over to John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Jesus is trying to explain in John 12, 49 and 12, 50, that everything he receives from the Father is eternal life. It's it's a expression of saying, I am here to image out the Father because, this is Jesus saying, I have his likeness. We are one. We're connected together. And as I express the image of the Father out, it's showing you the level of life, of eternal life, this knowing God at this deep relational, profound level. Knowing God is life. And that's what John 17 is all all about. But how is that expressed? Well, somebody says, well, I want to be a friend of God. And check out, (laughs) again, this is a relationship now. John chapter 15, look at verse 14. You, this is Jesus saying, red letter Bible again, New King James, if, no, you are my friends, but there's a condition there. It's a little word, I-F. Little word, but has big significance. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Do we ever make that connection there? Jesus is saying, look, my father in John twelve fifty, when he gives me a commandment, I know that that's life. Because my father would not ever command something that wouldn't bring life or regeneration or fruitfulness or you know prosperity or whatever you're speaking into. And it's interesting that in John 15:10, here's Jesus saying to his, um, again, contextually, this is the Last Supper. He's talking to his apostles. He says, "If you keep my commandments." you will abide or live in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Love from God in the form of a commandment and us hearing it and elevating his will, the doing of his will, the carrying out of Father God's will above ours is life. If you go back to the rich young ruler who approached um, uh, Jesus and he was asking, you know, um, oh, good teacher, uh, what do I have to do uh, to have eternal life? And um, the first words out of Jesus' mouth were pretty much, well, let me just read it to you. Again, New King James. Um, That's starting at uh, Matthew 19, verse 16. Now, behold, one came to him, good teacher, what good thing do or shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, again, thinking what the definition of eternal life is. Eternal life is knowing God, as John seventeen three, knowing, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So know relationally, not know about. And here's this uh, young um, man who uh, is rich, 
And he's asking this question, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And notice what Jesus says in verse 17. Where are we? Matthew 19, this is 17. So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God, talking about the Father. But if you want to enter into life, we always think of that life is you know, dying and going to a place, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about relationship here. Look, look how Jesus answered him. But if you want to enter into life, here it is, keep the commandments. Wow. How, how much more clear is that? Do we, do we hear that preached from, from pulpits nowadays? And, of course, you know, the story ends where, you know, um, Jesus, you know, s- cites uh, four or six of the, of the Ten Commandments, and the, and the young man, kind of in a cocky, set, cocky way, you know, um, pretentious way, says, the young man said to him after hearing the commandments, oh, all these things I have kept from my youth. What still do I lack? And then, of course, Jesus hits him with the, with the torpedo right in midship, and he says, if you want to be perfect, well, go and sell what you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and, and come follow me. <laughs> and when he heard that, he went away sorrowful because he knew he had great possessions, and he had other higher values than following God's will. We briefly mentioned Matthew seven twenty one last week. Since we're right here in Matthew, I want to just take a quick look at it. Um, this is a shocked group of people. This is uh, addressed not to people who are unsaved, but people who are not only saved, but I think they also have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I think you might admit when you hear these verses that you think hey, these probably were the all-star team. These were the heavy hitters. Matthew seven twenty one. This is red letter edition again now. Jesus is saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But Now notice, but he who what? Does the will of my Father. Here we are again. You can't enter the kingdom unless you're doing the Father's will. Now that's 721. Check out the next verse, 722. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? The unsaved don't prophesy in Jesus' name. Have we not cast out demons in your name? Again, the unsaved don't cast out demons. I would say that these are not only saved people, these are people who have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And have we not done many wonders in your name? Other Bibles say signs. Uh, in your name. And look at verse 23. Here comes the shocker. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Now let's go back. Let's just stop right there. In John seventeen three, what did it say that eternal life was? It starts off with these words, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Here is Jesus in John, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 7, verse 23, telling these people who are, you know, broadcasting their wonderful um, deeds and uh, miracles and casting out of demons and prophecies that they said all in Jesus' name. And the very next verse, he's declaring to them, I never knew you. So do they have eternal life in that moment when Jesus is declaring that to them after they've done or bragged about all of these deeds, trying to obviously impress Jesus? And his response is, I never knew you. Wow. Did they miss the whole point? They were doing seemingly religious stuff, powerful religious stuff. And the bottom line is Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How, how can you be practicing lawlessness in their religious mind as they go to uh, you know, assess what he just said? And, said? and Jesus is saying, look, here's the, here's the bottom line. I think if you shake this all out, 
when we get to the day of judgment, um, I say this in chapter 8 of a book I wrote called God Got a Problem on His Hands. Um, this goes way back to 2003 when I read this, but so much of the topics uh, and chapters, this one is called To Know and Obey. And I start off the chapter on page 55. I say, I'm of the persuasion that on the day of judgment, there will be two questions asked by the Lord to each member of mankind. This persuasion is based on the 25th chapter of Matthew, which contains two parables, the parable of the virgins and the parable of the talents. These two parables are right next to each other in the scripture for a reason. The topic of the final judgment follows immediately thereafter on both of those uh, parables. And the first question that will be posed uh, when we get to the day of judgment, the first question will be, did you know me? And let's assume hypothetically for the moment we say, oh, yes, yes, we, we, we knew you. But it's judgment day. Judges demand evidence. I'm a retired judge, okay? I was a retired judge for almost 21 years. I mean, did judging uh, for 21 years um, in an official uh, state capacity as a judge. And judges require evidence before they make a decision on something. And the second question to follow up, and well, then, as you claim that you know me, did you do my will? Did you do my father's will? The first question, I'm reading back from the book now, and um, God's got a problem on his hands, uh, page 55. The first question of do you know me stems from the parable of the ten virgins. I, 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 go, I ask you to go back and read uh, Matthew 25 because those two parables are very, very powerful. And they deal with what they, what's called um, potential. They're, people are given potential. Um, the talents, they all got talents in Matthew 25. What did they do with it? With the virgins, they all had oil. What did they do with it? And I said, if you're rusty on the content of these parables, it would be worth your time to read and study their content. Many commentators attribute the oil in the lamps of the virgins to represent the amount of of life in each virgin, Holy Spirit life. But when the bridegroom finally arrives for the wedding, only five of the ten were prepared with sufficient oil to enter into the ceremony. Again, this is answering the question, what are we saved for? If we're saved for eternal life, what does that mean? That, that's not dying and going to heaven. I have nothing against heaven, but that's not eternal life. There's not a verse in the Bible that says dying and going to heaven is eternal life. It does, there's not a verse in the Bible that says that's the reason or the purpose for which Jesus came. He came to reconcile us back to his Father. And if we get to know the Father and start doing his will, doing his command, we know him because we're hearing from him. That assumes that we are deepening our relationship because when he says jump, we say, Father, how high? Because there's something that you want to accomplish through us and in us and for us. Uh, Going back to the book here, um, the remaining five virgins attempted to buy oil from those who had sufficient oil. However, there was only an adequate amount available for those who already possessed it. So by the time the group of those who were lacking finally returned and with recently pur- purchased oil, the door to the wedding was already shut, and they were not allowed in. Their pleas for entrance only produced the voice of the Lord, who declared again, here we are again, that he did not know them. That's the same thing that the group in Matthew twenty seven twenty one through 23 were told after they claimed, we did all this stuff for you in your name. And he says, I didn't know you. So, the same thing is told to the five virgins without oil. So the second question of did you do my will stems from the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Because if we claim to say, oh, we knew you, then the Lord's going to say, all right, to prove it, did you do my will? Check it out in Matthew 25. I'm Again, I'm reading page 56 of God's Got a Problem on His Hands. Um, the second question of did you do my will stems from the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Again, if you've never read this parable, if you're rusty on its contents, you may want to take a look at it. Note all of the servants in the parables were given talents. Only two of the three involved produced results per the expectations of the master giver. The one who produced no result 
had the little who was initially given to him taken away, the one talent that he buried, and given to those who did follow the will of, of the master. And then the wicked, lazy servant who did not do what was expected of him was thrown into a place called outer darkness, where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. I do not believe that these parables are intended for those who never knew the Lord. These are talking about people who knew the Lord at some point. The virgins all had some oil. The people all received talents. What did they do with it? Is initial salvation a scholarship or is it a diploma? Wow. Hope to see you next week. Hope you have a ton of Simple Truth moments. God bless you. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Simple Truth Moments show features a website where you can access previous podcasts of the Simple Truth Moments show. Also, previous radio shows, sermons, lectures, sponsored events, books, and publications, along with the blogs by the author and broadcaster, Reverend Earl Clampett of the Simple Truth Moments show. Just type in www.simpletruthministries.net and click onto the media page and the book publications page, you will learn so much more on how the kingdom of God ways are impacting our current Gentile church culture to rediscover our Hebrew covenant roots and God's blueprint plans to bring together both Jew and Gentile into one new humanity in Messiah Jesus and Father God. It will be a life-changing journey you will not soon forget. So type in www.simpletruthministries.net. It's not .org. It's not .com. Remember, .net. God bless. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.